Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Hey everybody. It's Michelle and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson. 
MSCCCSLPCLC, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Culver Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant, who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm hoping everyone can see me. And that we're golden ski here. Yes, beautiful. Okay, so thank you everyone for letting us reschedule. Life has been, we're just gonna go with eventful this summer, Erin. Is that a, a safe way to describe the summer? Yes. And everybody, we've got, just to kind of catch you up to speed, we've got some exciting things that are going on that I just kind of want to head us up with. First, we are closing out the month of July. And this month, Erin and I had the joy of partnering with PlaySpark for a fundraiser for Feeding Matters. And we donated a quote from my book, Chasing the Swallow. I'm a bad saleswoman. I don't even have a copy of it anywhere handy, but like it's a thing that happened. And the shirt says, fat is fat is fed. And you can get one shirt that has a booby on it, which is awesome. Also, totally not realistic because after you breastfed, your boob never looks like that again. And then the other shirt has a milk bag for when we pump. And part of the donations, Erin and I are making no money on this, will go directly to Feeding Matters for the month of July. So please go check out PlaySpark. Also be sure to come visit Erin and I, because we are for sure going to New Orleans and we will be at the speechtherapypd.com double decker booth of grandiose proportions this year, rolling dice, I think. That sounds, I don't know, I'm a terrible roller. And I'll be presenting on feeding tubes on Friday morning. So that's kind of it. So check us out at ASHA and that's pretty much it. Erin? What other new exciting things do we we have? Have you finished unpacking yet? What do you mean? I mean, you you bought a new car, but you like took all uh, the things out of your old car and then had boxes again. No, I'm not going to show you guys my apartment, but it's like partly unpacked. It'll <laughs> unpack eventually. Maybe, maybe not. Honestly, maybe it'll be packed forever. And I probably don't need any of this stuff, but it's fine. Okay. Bear and Goose and I will come visit and the boys will just empty everything out of the boxes to play. 
this is fine. <laughs> okay. A lot of jackets. Well, Every jacket I own was in that car because I would wear it in the morning and then take it off during the day and never bring it back in. And so it just was a collection. July. That means they've been in your car since April. My poster presentation from grad school was still in my car. So hidden under deep down in the seats. I was full spite, like Spider-Man lifting stuff up, getting everything out before they came to pick it up. (laughs) Oh my God, I love you. Now I have a car payment and I haven't had one. So yeah. So we've, needless to say, summer 2022 has been full of a lot of adulting moments and we're just, yep, cool. Okay. So folks, we hope that this finds you in great spirits. Also, today's episode is possible because of two fabulous and amazing organizations that I owe a huge debt of gratitude. Again, I make no money, but today's crash course is from all of the firsthand experience that Aaron and I have garnered in the world of AAC. Especially thank you to Kelsey Peterson and Wyatt Franken with Talk to Me Technologies and Lane Riles with Control Bionics. Again, they don't pay us to say that, but honest to goodness, I can tell you Kelsey and Talk to Me, Darlene are behind the scenes and we have 35 AAC trials going on in the clinic right now, which means this weekend I'll be writing a whole lot of lovely 10 page reports, but It is because of their around-the-clock support that we are able to do the trials and advocate for these patients to get their devices, and I am just incredibly grateful. Hello, Cola Kitty. So that's that. Okay, so we have have a lot to cover, and y'all, we're live, so if you have questions about what all we're talking about, please feel free to put it in the chat box, because this is our dream as what... Carol Page had said, the former director, she just retired of the South Carolina Sister Technology Office. She said she wished she had a larger chisel to eat away at all of the myths that surround AAC so that people felt more comfortable. So that's, so Carol, ode to you. Thank you for today. So, okay, Aaron. Take me away with what is one myth that you hear a lot of times from families or from other clinicians that you have to start with pets. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Picture exchange system to be exact communication system. mm -hmm. And I think, and we're just going to go there today. So if we Mm -hmm. offend anybody, I apologize, but you're here. So Thank you. But I think that that's also a common myth that is very much continued to be talked about in the school system because partly, and I will give school SLPs a lot of credit. There's a lot more red tape in the school system because unfortunately schools don't want to have to pay for speech generating devices because they're very expensive. So it's been perpetuated that a child needs to be able to use a picture exchange communication system before they can use a speech generating device, which is not true. I'm going to find her. I think a great, great resource is Kate McLaughlin is her name and she's goes by authentic AAC and She, I listened to her on a podcast, Two Sides of the Spectrum with Meg Proctor, 
And the thing that she said to me, which will forever stick with me is that is it is most important that a child has a robust communication system to be able to say everything that they want to say, even if it requires a little more help. So it's not most important that they can independently use something use a communication system, it's more important that you find a way that they can say everything that they want to say. And I think that's how I go into most of my AAC evaluations and introducing AAC to families and patients and working with other professionals, because we as a society, I think value independence too much. I think it's great. It's great to be independent, but people who have disabilities need more access And that's important. And that may mean that they can't be independent with everything and that's okay. So putting independence before self-advocacy and before authenticity and what they want to communicate, I think is a complete disservice to them. So I think that's, that was a larger answer, but to make that a point, pecs are not always the answer and it's okay. So yes, if we go there starting if we go straight to one and it's low tech and we labor under the perpetuated misinformation. And I have literally been told in IEP meetings when I've gone to advocate for a child that a child had to be at a set level on PECs before they would transition a child to a speech generating device. Then those are direct violations within the communication bill of rights. And I put that in the chat box. So the Communication Bill of Rights was produced by the National Joint Committee for the Communication Needs of Persons with Severe Disabilities. And there's a ton through here. But number nine, the right to access interventions and supports that improves communication. And just as Aaron was saying, that would prohibit it. The right to access functioning AAC services at all times. So that means it can't be tucked up on a shelf somewhere collecting dust. But you also, when you opened, you said one profound statement that I'm going to like shock and awe everybody's brain. Folks labor under the misinformation that they think they have to pay for this out of pocket, right? And one of our girlfriends posted something on Instagram last week, and she was posting that she just purchased an iPad and she was getting ready to purchase communication apps. And she's like, which communication app should I purchase first? Now, I literally did this. Oh, my God. I I don't have a copy of my book, but I have a copy of this. This was my original iPad that I got for my private practice when I opened up my private. It was purple because branding people, branding. It matched my electric purple scrubs. And I went out. It was the mini. I thought it was perfect. And I went out and I paid out of pocket for the AAC app. And that was like between the two of them, I spent almost $800 out of pocket. Work smarter, not harder. I now know that I can create something called a long-term loan agreement with AAC companies. Now, I don't utilize other AAC companies out there, and I know that there are more than just Talk to Me Technologies and Control Bionics, but those are just the two that I tend to work with because I tend to rely heavily on TouchChat and LAMP, Language Acquisition Through Motor Planning. That one's a PRC one. Again, they don't pay me to say that. We just I love them. But those two companies have set me up for free and can set you listening up for free with long-term loans. And I mean, it's 
kind of been indefinite that they just like send the loans to me. So then whenever I'm working with the patient and I'm like, Hey, this child's not speaking spontaneously, but we presume competence. I just pull it out and just start engaging with it. But here's the catch. I had the joy of a lifetime talking to one of my mentors. She's a chair of a school district over in the PD. She's the special education coordinator. And her and I were talking as she has reminded me on more than one occasion, she's old enough to be my mother. And I was like, you know, I was like, honey, they can just give you the loans. It was like, they can set your entire school district staff up every single SLP with a long-term loan for free. So that way they just have it right there. And she was like, shut up. I was like, no, I'm, I'm serious. And so also when she said that, I about fell in my pants. Cause I was like, oh my God, she just said, shut up. Like all sassy, like, cause it's just funny when like older women say that, but I confused FUPA and a FOMO. So like, you know, older women, those are very different things. <laughs> But like they can set you these up for free. And that's one huge barrier is that we think we have to pay out of pocket for these trials when we don't. Okay. Mm-hmm. I also work with Toby. I work with a lot of girls with rut syndrome and Toby is, has a very strong presence in the rut syndrome community. Do I think it's the answer for every girl with rut syndrome? No, they just, that's just what has been, they were the first I guess. So that's yes. where that, I think has continued, but there are a lot of other companies that have eye gaze technology that have other technology. And I always say, I think there are a lot of myths out there that one app is better than the other. Yes. And I don't think, do I have apps that I use more frequently? Yes. I tend to use lamp more frequently with a lot of my patients. Granted, there are significant barriers to LAMP when you have just adult language processors, because it is built very analytic where you go from one, you take very small pieces and build them together. However, there's benefit to that because it helps our just adult language processors physically understand the barriers of words, which I think is very cool. I'll create phrases And if I'll have a kid that likes to delete them, he lets me use it. Like he's very open to it, but as he has to delete every word physically, I'm understanding that this phrase is made up of different parts and not long part, but there's ways to accommodate that. For example, I'll put their scripts in the app. I think another myth too, is that you have to use the app like an analytic processor. So they have to, you say, I like to watch movies or I want to go home. Like when in reality, again, going back to why are we making this harder than it has to be mm-hmm. speaking? If we're using AAC with a child, it's because speaking for them is not as easy as a child who is, is fully speaking. And, and so at first we should make it as easy as it possibly can be for them to communicate. Because that at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. If we want to build more language, yes, then we're going to work to help them dissect those parts of speech and grow that. And that can build literacy. And there's so much benefit to that. But I get so frustrated when a child already has trouble speaking. And then you need to make them say every single individual message when they're frustrated and they can't even access their frontal lobe because they're just in their lower brain because they can't tell us what they want. So that's something I think that I've had a lot of conversations with my coworkers about recently is like, 
How do we support our gestalt language processors when it comes to AAC in the best way possible and the most authentic way possible? And also, how do we continue to build language while also focusing on the importance of communication and engagement and connection? Because at the end of the day, that's our basis for them growing communication and language in general. And with the apps, like I think every child chooses their own app. I think you should be comfortable with as many apps as you possibly can be comfortable with, because there's going to be different reasons why kids choose different apps. And this is a bigger conversation that we can go into, but do they have a cortical vision impairment? Yes. How do we need to help them best see the device? And that's an opportunity to work with other professionals that have a better understanding of how to set. There's a lot of apps now that have cortical vision impairment comparable settings so that it has more of a black background and so that it's easier for them to see. But there are certain ways. Red borders. I mean, you can change the borders. You, I mean, like you can change the borders to different colors. You can change the thickness to the borders. Wait, when I'm describing that, like within the apps themselves, the border would be the square around each individual speech generating icon. Yep. And so you can change those borders, those parameters to different colors. So it contrasts with the word and or the target. Mm-hmm. Also, you can have some that will pop out. So yep. it like catches your attention. Yes. Yep. So I have some, and I have some kids where they're growing that cause and effect. Mm-hmm. So when I'm modeling and I use this with a lot of the kids that I, I have that use eye gaze and eye gaze is very interesting. And I would love if anyone's doing research on this or knows research on this that's being done or has a desire to do research in general. I have a lot of patients who receptively that are medically complex. So are very strong with their receptive language but whatever it be, they have, they're on a vent or they have significant motor deficits. They have a harder time with their expressive language. And so we start with eye gaze because access from a motor standpoint might be hard for them, but they are building their overall motor learning. And so they're probably going to get to direct access eventually. It's just a transition because right now this is where they are and this is where they need to be. And this is how they are going to be able to access as much as, as much communication as they possibly can when they need it now. Like you need to have an end goal in mind, but you also need to meet them where they're at. And so I have some kids where that cause and effect from a visual standpoint is harder. So when you touch, if you model it by touching the icon, it will change color So they can see where you're pointing and they can see what message you're looking at to be able to then better model that themselves. So that would be a reason why I might choose an app over another app. Lamp can't do that, but other apps can. So, and this is a big soapbox I have because, and I will speak with a lot of OTs and they will admit to this, that like, they don't get a lot of training for AAC. However... They are so important and PTs too, for us to understand how this child can best access a device. Because my question is always, what is going to be the easiest way for them to communicate as many things as they can possibly communicate? Because like I said, if they're already having trouble speaking and you make the device hard for them, I would throw it too. If I could, I would kick it. I don't know what I would do. I have kids who I put a device in front of them and they use their feet because they, that's Uh great. And that's great. But like, I also... I'm not the specialist in fine motor or gross motor, but a lot of OTs, I think are very uncomfortable with just the apps in general, because they don't get training in it. Mm -hmm. 
I'm laughing because I have one little guy who has hydrocephalus was a preemie and he's a pistol, right? He was laying on the ground in big gym today and the device was propped on the side because he said he wanted a break. So we laid him out and he likes to scoot around on his back backwards and he sings little songs when he's doing it. We came over to his device and I had just thought to myself, he's really doing okay because we had him on the, on a 13 inch, I was like, maybe we could bring him down to a 10. Cause I'm worried about like it being too heavy for him. Mm-hmm. He reached over, grabbed it and face planted. Right. I mean, I mean, it went from like here to him. It got him on his forehead and he pulled it back and he looked at me. He's like, no. And I was like, I'm so sorry, baby. But like, and then after that, he thought it was really funny to like use his forehead to right. turn the device on to get a kick out of us in between asking for bites of Vienna sausages and chocolate pudding. <laughs> so like, also that's a very interesting flavor combo and a conversation for like a different day, but like, but to go full circle, we hit the point where for his device, we're looking at a wheelchair mount to get it on his wheelchair. And the wheelchair is not my scope. That's not my domain. I don't know how to measure for a wheelchair. I don't know how to take the pictures and what angles they need. I was not taught that in grad school, nor have I ever taken a course on how to do those measurements. But the OT, I mean, heavens to Betsy's, we have a stellar coda and the coda was over there teaching me about how to like what angles to take and like what measurements. And did you consider this tray or did you consider this type of tray? And to be fair, I didn't know there was a difference in trays. So like, but again, not my scope. And this is why we engage in interprofessional education to support interprofessional practice. So, mm-hmm. okay. There's another really big barrier that we have skirted around, but or talked around. And this ties into initiating a speech generating trial. There is a very large misconception that families are going to have to pay out of pocket for these. And for the most part, insurances or organizations exist to offset and completely cover this cost. So what I have found is when I'm securing trials between the different AAC companies is that when we're setting up the trials, you know, we fill out the paperwork and the paperwork, it's kind of like it's kind of like buying a new car. It's like a 10, 12 page app and you have to supply the caregivers or the child's or the patient's insurance cards and information and all of that goes with. But when we send it off and they ship out the device, yes, there is a lag time. That trial is free and for the duration of the trial. And if I have one little guy, he has neonatal abstinence syndrome, grade three intraventricular hemorrhage. We had a whole lot of etiologies going on. We tried a head gaze or a head tracker. He didn't want to do the eye gaze. It just, his nystagmus was so profound that the eye gaze just really didn't work for him. So we tried a head tracker and then We realized very quickly that even though he has hemiparesis profound on his left side, because he actually stroked on his right, his right hand, once he realized through some of the apps that he was activating them with direct access with his hand, because dad was modeling it and he saw his dad doing it through aided language simulation, he started engaging more with his right hand. And through the trial on an AAC device, his OT goals were met, which was just beautiful. And then we found out that neither one of those devices were going to work. We had to get a third trial 
to finally meet his needs. So this has taken the better part of six months to finally find the one that works for him. All of this time, his unique trials were free and insurance has completely paid for it. And yes, it took time. And yes, there was downtime between, but to initiate, all I had to do is pick up the phone, call tech support and fill out the documents, scan, send them back. And ta-da, a couple weeks later, the device was there. And that's mm-hmm. way, way well, simpler. But you, the reason it's so important to spend all that time making sure it's the right fit is because that device is supposed to last them five years. Granted, if there's a significant change in status or something happens, you can advocate to insurance to cover one sooner, mm-hmm. but five years is a long time. So making mm-hmm. sure it can grow with them and they yes. can fit is very important. And that's where I think when you start a device with a child that's really young, as you should, I do it in EI all the time. Number one that I hope we don't really have to talk about is that this does not slow down them from speaking. I'm not even like, I'm not even really going to go there, but you are going to hear that from parents still all the time. And I think it's very important to think about how you bring this up to parents. I've had less pushback with AAC than I have with like floor time play-based therapy, honestly. Hmm. recently, because I think it's just become a little bit more mainstream. Isn't really the word because it's not mainstream, but it's become, there's been more awareness mm-hmm. in regards to utilizing AAC, but it's similar in the way of with any of our patients, you have to understand where a parent is at in their grief cycle, because bringing up a device is you parents will think is you saying that they're not going to be speaking or that they're incredibly delayed or whatever that means, whatever that means to that parent doesn't mean what that means to you. But I've had a lot of conversations recently about having crucial conversations with parents and just being on the same page as them. And just like we talk about with anything, language, feeding, whatever you have to build the child's trust, you also have to build the parent's trust. And so you may meet a kid that you right away for a session want to bring out a device. But if that's going to like be too much for the parent right away, like maybe take the time to earn their trust, to connect with them, to help them understand what their goals are. And I say this with a lot of things, ask them what like their long-term overarching goal is for the child. I want my child to communicate with me. I want my child to be able to connect with people. I want my child to feel safe. Those types of goals. Okay. I hear you. This is going to help them do that. As opposed to how many words do you want them to say, or how do you want, like get down to the nitty gritty, like that's the wrong word. Get down to like, no, really like, what do they really want for their child? And also know that like, you may plant a seed and they may not be ready. And that's okay because if they're not going to implement this at home and you keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, that's not what's working for the family. And you have to adjust from there. We may know this is the right move. We love AAC. We love using speech generating devices, no matter how young the child is to help them build their communication, but the family has to buy in. So sometimes getting buy-in from the parent is very important. 
We got a question and I'm going to get there, but I had one thought and I don't want to lose it. because It was a long day. I'll read it while you. Um, okay. So uh, oftentimes I hear parents and this kind of does tie in, create a, they want their child to read. They want their child to learn to spell, but yet their spoken language acquisition is comparative to that of a 15 month old or an 18 month old. Right. So I use the example of, do you use the closed captioning on your favorite TV show? And you'd be surprised how many parents use closed captioning on their TV when they're trying to rock a baby to sleep or, you know, how many guys don't want to admit to hearing loss, my husband included, he turns on his closed captioning as soon as like it's a British comedy or something like that, because he has a hard time discriminating the speech sounds, right? And the boys love it. And I've told parents before, you know, especially like my time in the public schools a lifetime ago, turn on closed captioning. They're seeing the printed word. There is research to support that utilization of a speech generating device with the printed word on there does empower our students to learn literacy faster. And when I tie that in, it tends to, for some families, not for all, but for some families, they're like, oh yeah, wow, that's great. And, and that does that does make a difference. Okay, so we have a question. Erin, do you want to read the question out loud? Oh yeah, I forgot. You guys can't see it. So you mentioned that you don't look for independence, but what level of competency do you look for to determine that something like high-tech AAC has value to a student rather than overcomplicating what simple messages they would need to functionally communicate? My experience, most of my students come to my school level with overshot goals or expectations. And when they continually do not show the progress that a high-tech device seems to promise, recommendations to tailor a device to a student's needs slash abilities can be met with tentativeness by parents because it appears that their child is regressing. I was going to say, I see where this question is coming from. I think you, you probably haven't found what's meaningful for the child. Because and that's not said with any judgment whatsoever. No, it's, I didn't mean that. I meant like in general, like the even just I because it mirrors. I'm mean, I'm trying to think. There's a patient that one of my colleagues sees, and that it's met with a similar situation. This child has a high tech AAC and great intentions, great intentions from school, great intentions from mom, but when it comes to his play in general and his connectedness. It's mirroring what he's using with his device. So I do see where you're coming from with that. Like functionally, this the, a lot of these children appear to be communicating what they're communicating, but this device is like setting all these expectations and yet it's not aiding the device in and of itself isn't pulling out this communication language like, like we're kind of talking about today. I think part of that comes from like connecting with the child. And I see maybe it is like taking a step back from a device because that's not necessarily what is going to pull that more language. It's going to allow them access to the language if they want to communicate it. But if they're not connecting and we're not finding their interest and we're not necessarily understanding what they want to communicate, they're probably not going to use it for more communication because at the end of the day, it has to be motivating, but we have to figure out what's going to be motivating for them. And I think of a very specific example that someone, I forget where they talked about it, but it was this, I think she was maybe young, not quite a teenager, but almost non-speaking, limited use of her AAC speech generating device. And it took them a very long time. They were offering her like 
what they thought were developmentally appropriate games and toys to play with. But this child wanted to play with dolls and jewelry and things that were more her age, but because developmentally they were like bringing these games down to where they thought she was, she was not interested. She didn't want to tell you, she didn't want to talk about it because it wasn't something that was meaningful to her. So I think that's twofold in that, no, the device is not necessarily, sometimes seeing the words on the device and hearing them can pull that out of children. But there are times where like, yeah, if we have to work on that, like engagement and finding more meaning and silly putting just their experiences of life for them to want to communicate with that, if that makes sense. I didn't, and I didn't mean that in any, like, I didn't mean any offense to that at all. I think I do think that there then can be a connotation of, okay, we brought this device in. They're not communicating more. It seems to be pretty functional. It's more technology. It's more plugs. It's more things everyone has to keep track of. And that can seem daunting. Yeah. It can seem very daunting, but that's the moment when you, I think you have to be like, okay, are they communicating everything they want to? Are we not, are they not connecting with us in a way that they want to communicate more and just like pull more things from there? I just want to conclude with you're screwed. <laughs> and that is not what you want to hear. But like, okay, I give you that. And then I'm going to pull back and tell you the, my thoughts that mirror Aaron's. So Aaron and I, because we work in private practice, because we work in early intervention, we get to fully embrace child-led therapy. We get to do what it is that the kid likes. And we don't have to be tied into the specific IEP goals that have to be written in alignment with whatever your state standards are. I know in Virginia, it's SOLs. I don't know what it is in South Carolina because my kids don't go to public school. They go to charter school and yeah, but like different conversation. So because of that, if you're working in the public schools, Aaron and I run caseloads. How many, you have what, 30 a week? I'm running 22 consistently, but 10 on flex. So like you have 25. Okay. Yeah. I work less hours. How I is only work four days a week, but I also drive to them, Michelle. You forget? Yes, this is true. Yes. But if you're working in the public schools, you're probably running a caseload of like anywhere from 50 to 80. And God forbid, you got probably, I mean, some of the districts are upwards of 100. So your ability to spend the time doing that is limited before you walk in the door. So then I'm going to challenge the home health therapist to empower you or the caregivers to empower you. If they wrote those goals, then theoretically, when they wrote those goals, they were under the impression that these goals were obtainable, right? So then what I have families do in my sessions to bridge the gap between what we're doing in clinic to what they're going to do in the school is I have them film me working with the child doing heavy duty aided language simulation. And I have them film the child at home when the caregivers are doing aided language simulation. And What I have found is as the child develops autonomy over their device, that this is an extension of selves, sometimes they don't want you touching their device, which I appreciate because that means it's theirs. This is mine. This is a part of my body. Yes. Okay. So yeah, if they share those videos with you after you have signed consent, again, signed consent is critical. That should help guide and shape your, how you approach it within the classroom. But 
Also don't take that onus on yourself. Yeah. Don't and seek to understand, because I also think it's like you get, I understand where I've had moments where you get, you get inherited goals and you're like, I don't know if these are, am I doing something wrong? Like, am I missing something? Seek to understand where they're coming from because we all write goals very differently and for different purposes. And there are people that, I mean, I'm still working on the goals that I'm writing. I know that the, I write goals in a plan of care with the intention of them meeting the goal at the three month mark when I assess that, but I have therapists that I work with that don't do that. So is this a long-term goal? Like kind of where is that coming from? I think is really important because you're also in a different setting. What is happening about the setting? How can I navigate this? Are there ways to help this child be more regulated or the ways to help support this child? I think that there's a lot of pieces, but the more you can seek to understand where that's coming from, the more you can help them because we don't know what happened in the past. We don't know what those goals were. So we have two questions and I, we got to respect them both. The second half of this question from the first question was, didn't mean the transition. It was about earlier grades versus going into high school and they appear to have plateaued in their progress with their AAC. That's okay. Sometimes my uncle Matthew monster, my brother-in-law has, he's 45. The man has a cortical vision impairment. He has CP, he has ASD, he has an intellectual disability, microcephaly. We have all of the things, right? Matthew still has an IEP at that age under IDEA part A, which is 21 and older. And he still is eligible for services. He would still be eligible for speech therapy. However, there is a time and a place for, as Aaron quotes, calls it episodic care and for recognizing that we have therapeutic plateaus and we have reached our max skill set. And that's okay. Now, holding that crucial conversation and counseling a family through, this is what we're seeing. Don't put that on your shoulders. That is a team meeting, everybody on the team being together. And yes, there will be grief. There will be tears, but not always. Sometimes parents will have suspected that, but need to see it from another individual that, hey, this is where we are and we have worked a lifetime to get here. So let's celebrate where we are now. And that's okay. But Mm -hmm. everybody's end goal is different. But ma'am, that is a, or sir, or they, that is a very heartfelt conversation that you're about to have. And I think you can have the same thought with any other, do that, do you feel like they're communicating what they want to communicate and like have access to that and are able to have quality of life? And I think that's, that's when you have to think about that as opposed to constantly like progress, 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 because again, that's also a little thinking about a child constantly having to progress in their skill set, Also a little ableist, you know? So it's like, you like, I mean, it's okay. Like Talking about precursor skills to introducing AAC, that's a very good myth also because there are none. Zero. I think about it like this. It's not a progression of speaking, sign language, AAC. AAC is a tool. And so if I have a kid that like I'm, we're speaking just isn't coming as naturally to them. Let's put in this tool and see if it helps them. Let's try it out. Let's, are they visual? If a kid is really visual, speaking 
if a kid is really visual and they're autistic, speaking is probably going to be a lot harder for them because they're not going to have that eye contact and be looking right at your face. Not all, but like a lot of times. And so bringing in something else that's visual to just aid in that, I'll do it. I have a kid that's a little over one that I brought in a device to see how it works. Granted, this child has a genetic diagnosis and some other things that we knew that speech and language prognosis wise, we're going to maybe take a little bit longer. So I think it's just a tool and some kids aren't ready for it. When you bring it in, sometimes I have a child that we're working on just regulation and engagement and sometimes commute and communication is regulating. But for this child specifically, like he was like chucking it because he was like, I'm not even, and I can't even feel my own body right now. One of the attendees wanted to know what device or what program you used with that child you just referenced. I started with, well, we're doing trials, but I started with touch chat and I started with, I think four, a field of four. Sometimes I'll start with a field of two. It also depends like this child motor wise kind of does this like scraping pattern. Mm -hmm. That's not the OT term. So I apologize if no OT is listening, but so from an access standpoint, that was going to be a little more difficult, Mm -hmm. have too many icons. And I don't have like a system, which I kind of just every child. And this is what I love about AAC. This is what I love about floor time. This is what I love about feeding. Every child is so unique. And so you just pull from your toolbox and try and don't be afraid to fail. Like you may try and it's not even failing, but you may try an app and the kid may hate it, or you may try something and they may not be able to access as much communication with it as you know that they, as you're presuming competence wise that they understand, but there's so many apps out there. And honestly, and this is what Michelle was talking about. I have the AAC reps and Wyatt comes probably once a month to see a patient of mine at some point, because I will say, and I will talk to him. I will be like, this is where our language is receptively or what I think Most of the time, a child receptively, if they are non-speaking is going to be higher than you think it is because they're going to show us everything that they, they understand. It is amazing when you, and it was really amazing because I work at the Rett syndrome clinic here at Shriners hospital. They don't have a speech therapist here. So I go in every other month and I work with them and support them for communication and feeding, work with the genesis, work with the neurologist. And it was so cool to see the neurologist and geneticist and all these other professionals watch these girls using eye gaze devices and AAC to show everything that they understand and communicate. Like they were just like floored when it works so well, but there's so much more that the children that we work with understand than even us who presume as much competence as we think we do think. And so I will have the AAC rep come and say, this is what I'm thinking. This is how they access. I think they might have a cortical vision impairment. I think they need to see when I'm touching this. I need access to this type of communication and help. They'll brainstorm with me because they understand the apps better than I do. Use your resources. I don't know every app. I don't know every way to set up the app. I am not as fast with technology. Like I had one trial where... We were adding a bunch of messages for pretty quickly and realizing how much language this child had. And they said, anytime you want to add a message, just 
just text us and we can get on Wi-Fi and do it for you. Like they can remote hack in and plug this stuff in and they do it for free on a free trial from anywhere in the world. It's amazing. Build your connections and build your resources. Don't feel like you have to go and understand every app and try every app on your own and know, like, I'm not never going to know every app and every way to use it. And so I call in the big guns, the people that know them the most. And I say, this is what I think I need. This is what I want them to access. This is how they have used the device in the past. And they'll help you figure it out. Okay. So Marianne asked a really good question. Do you have a preferred low tech starter device for toddlers that are apraxic with no cognitive impairment and close to age appropriate receptive language and no co-occurring issues whatsoever? Okay. So I have so many different thoughts. One, I wholeheartedly do not believe in the diagnosis of childhood apraxia of speech. And the reason I don't believe in childhood apraxia of speech is if we're looking at the apraxic true diagnosis and we compare apraxia for peds and apraxia for adults and the patients that I have had previously, when I have worked in close co-treatments with occupational therapists, we come to find out the child also had apraxic movements. They had deficits with fine motor skills and there was other red flags. And we have found dysgenesis of the corpus callosum, which on CT scan, MRI scans, we have had, they found old strokes. They have found absence of cortical tissue pieces missing from the cerebellum. And so whenever I see a red flag for apraxia, in a child. One, I'm going to refer out to a dear colleague at MUSC to ensure that we have a differential diagnosis and that we're not missing something else like a dysarthria secondary to something else. But also I'm going to refer to a neurologist. That's me. But then also ask your OTs and your PTs, are there overall movements to have dyspraxia overall from a gross motor, fine motor standpoint, because that's something to think about which can be coordinated with their sensory integration system, which has a lot of, but that's, yes. important. that's another factor in thinking about that. Yes. But also if a child has apraxia, regardless of the etiology or the potential, my next question is, and I say this from a been there, did that. I used to start out and make as best as I could muster a robust, and I love using that term now, a robust low-tech board. But if they have apraxia, then they have difficulty getting it out. So I want, why would I offer a low-tech non-speech generating option where then they're having to ensure that somebody is sitting down and looking at what it is that I'm tapping versus when I tap it and I can crank that volume up and get the attention that I may have been denied previously because I couldn't get my words out. And I had a mentor ask that question of me one time. And I was like, I don't like that question. It makes me uncomfortable. And she was like, okay, honey, if it makes you uncomfortable to be asked, think about the child who's sitting there tapping, 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 but the mom's on her cell phone trying to schedule a doctor's appointment or the dishwasher's running or the the dog's barking outside. But if they're tapping, 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 and it's voice generating. So now that being said, will I use a low-tech device 
And do I give them out to my patients? I screenshot, I scan the homepage of their device and maybe the secondary page. Like if I'm using touch chat, I'll scan it and then I'll print them in color and laminate them and have the family put those in different high traffic areas within the home, such that if the child doesn't have their speech generating device with them and they're going into the fridge, I always ask for, where do you eat? Do you eat in the living room or do you eat in the kitchen? Put it somewhere where the child eats. And I've even had ordered, because we're doing multimodal, we're doing different levels and we're doing it in different settings so that it is more robust. I've had different Big Macs. You can like Velcro them to a crib and they work really well because the child couldn't convey that they wanted to be up and wake up. So they had one that said good night and one that said good morning. And I remember after a week, the mom gave them back and she goes, okay, we've mastered good morning. (laughs) So like, well, and I think there's also like, there's a lot of place for that. Like I have a lot of conversations with family about like giving some visuals and maybe when they go to the, when they're at the fridge, like right there having pictures of like what is in the fridge to help them communicate that. So like building, having so many options for communication is, and also think about it with a child that has apraxia or a child that's autistic. We can only say words so many times a day. And if they're using that device and they're babbling on that device and they're hearing words, like they're able to have that auditory input all day if they want to, and that can help them continue to learn language as well. So That's also something to think about. And there is a, I will say this because it is something that if you're working with autistic children with AAC, you need to know that just because a child is what some people may call stimming on the device does not mean that you have any right to take that message off or change it because A speaking child can say those words as much as they want to. And if they are continuing to say the same message on the device, it's for a reason. They might just like the sound of it because it, for their sensory system, it sounds nice. And that's fine. They might be practicing that word or babbling with that word. That might be how they connect. There are children I work with that love hearing the names of movies or hearing movie scripts or songs, and that brings them joy. And so how do you get in that joy with them? Because just taking that away is cruel and unkind. And so if a child is continuing to use the same word on device, figure out why get in their world and don't take it away because I don't know, that's just my opinion, but I think imagine someone taking your leg away. Mm-hmm. Would you take a child that uses a wheelchair, wheelchair away because they think it's funny to go super fast down a ramp? Right. No. Is it safe to go super fast down a ramp? No. You would hold a crucial conversation about slowing the speed and situational safety awareness. Maybe not the SLP, but I could see how that would fall in the SLP realm as well as the OT and the PT realm. Okay. We had a really good question about not... Let me aspirate my questions today. Also, this is, I love this. I've been dying for this. Yes. Okay. Can you speak more about not needing prerequisites for an AAC? Are you speaking about a younger versus older population or possibly simply functional uses? I know it's not what you're saying, but it sounds like using an AAC allows language to skip developmental steps. I hope that makes sense. Okay. So how often do we, within the framework of language acquisition, 
very quickly go to more or very quickly go to please or want, right? We use that as a multimodal tool to reach functional language and even typically developing children will use this because it's universal access, right? It's something that we can do. Now, how quickly are our toddlers, nine months, 12 months, learning how to flip through a device to get to the cocoa melon that they, <laughs> Marion, I love your enthusiasm, but I want to meet you. How quickly are they learning to access YouTube and navigate YouTube before they can even ask for YouTube? They can gesture and the mom knows the kid wants the phone, right? I don't even utilize those as prerequisites. I have it and bring AAC with me or have it in the clinic the same with which I would start signing. And when I am in a session and doing parent coaching, I am auditorily modeling. I am using ASL if I know the sign and I'm engaging in aided language stimulation. And the utilization of those approaches does not mean that the child is going to skip developmental steps, but also I have to ask the question, When you have a child that is neurodiverse, whether it be autism, whether it be ADD, ADHD, whether it be apraxia, whether it be neurodiverse secondary to an intellectual disability from a seizure disorder, their end goal for functional language will be different. Mm -hmm. And as I tell one little guy, and we always say it together, different, that's the sign for different, different is good. And I'm proud of you, right? So if their trajectory is not what Goose or Goose's speech acquisition trajectory is, that's fine. That's okay, which is really, really, really hard to wrap our brains around when we are taught to go through brown stages of language development. Like, Well, and what I would say is that, like you said, it's just another tool. Like you're not going to... I mean, I have two month olds that I try to build circles of communication with because I'm like, they're smiling at me and then I'm talking to them and then they look at me and we're like kind of growing that back and forth. So AAC is just another way of modeling language, which we always do with our children, regardless of where they are. I mean, like I said, I do it with babies. So But what I get, what you're saying and the way that child that I talked about who chucked the device off the slide, he isn't regulated. So in the regards to functional, emotional developmental capacities, which if you listen to any of our episodes where we talk about floor time, that's where they base that off of. You need to be regulated and engaged to grow that two-way communication. But that is something that you can work on while also building language too, because there are some of our neurodivergent population that will not seem like they're engaged, but they are. Mm -hmm. So AAC allows us to further dissect what that even looks like, because I think as, I mean, I'm neurodivergent, I have OCD, but like otherwise, you know, in other regards appear neurotypical. And so my joint attention and engagement is going to look different than an autistic child. So the more tools, the more opportunities you It's just giving them more opportunity to show us what they want to communicate. 
and it may not work all the time and you may need to figure out what app is best and it it may take time but if you keep modeling it in that way it's just another opportunity for them to communicate it's just something that they deserve to show us what they want what they need how they feel anything like that but yes you're still going to work on those other things as well we had two Three more questions and a comment come in. We're going to run about five minutes over because I do have the last objective that we have to meet. So maybe seven minutes over. One of them was alluding to the fact that on the device, the little one was using short phrases and utterances, but they may or may not be grammatically correct. Okay. So I'm going to caveat that with, if it is functional and it's communicating their wants and their needs, how many of us text and utilize short acronyms like the FOMO and the FUPA. And I didn't know there was a difference or LOL or ROT rolling on the floor. That I did not grow up texting, but like there are acronyms. Oh my God, this is mortifying. There are acronyms that people use to get their point across that are not full grammatically correct sentences. So my question is, Are we utilizing our device for functional communication or like some individuals who go on to obtain a dissertation, are they using it to write a dissertation? And if that is the sense, then if that's the difference, then we need to tailor our expectations and how we coach to help that child grow into an adult that reaches the stars that they want to reach. But those are, those are very different. Okay. Also there is a killer program. There's a killer. It is called closing the gap. There is a conference in Minnesota and it's called closing the gap. And it is heavy, heavy, heavy on the AAC. It's October 19th, 20th and 22nd. And I would recommend that one also. And our sweet friend Riley's going to come and talk about it from a sibling perspective, but also there is a ATIA, is that the acronym? I think it's ATIA and that's normally in January. And that is a complete assistive tech conference, but also ASHA in New Orleans will have an AAC track. So I would recommend that you pursue the AAC track as well. That makes sense when framing using as an AA tool within language. Yes. Parents seem to object, although it's functional for them. Yes. And that love, that's going to be another one of those really crucial conversations. If they want a grammatically correct sentence, yet the child wants short agreement. It's a salt language processor. The grammar doesn't come to like stage four, but that's a whole other podcast to lecture all the things. Yes. Yes. Okay. We have to go wrap with our funding process. Okay. So hypothetically, we have resolved all the questions that you have and answered all the things. Go team. We're all going to pretend that we did. (laughs) After you have completed your AAC trial and you've gathered your data. And for me, the data is I gather some of the phrases that the patient has conveyed on the AAC device and I start a running record and I use those in my reports. Child, My absolute favorite report was the child hacked into her own program. And she said, my name is Susie Q. Her name's not Susie Q, but that's the example that I give. She added food to hers. She said, my name is Susie Q. I don't want to hear no. I want Doritos, blueberries, and strawberries now. And then she handed it back to 
her grandma. And I was like, oh my God. She goes, I didn't add Doritos. I was like, I didn't do blueberries or strawberries. And she like pointed to her device. I was like, yes, ma'am. Heard, acknowledged, understood, feed the child. (laughs) That's a really awesome sentence for a child that the family did not know could do these things because spoken language was not there comparative to what we conveyed on the device. So you as the clinician will need to write a report. And a lot of these companies that Aaron and I get long-term loans from, they do have example reports. And I'm totally comfortable sharing a HIPAA compliant report. If you want an example, we can- um, so much of the work for you. Yes, yes. And, and they also have people that will review it and tell you, hey, you need better examples with this. Or, hey, can you clarify why this was the access point? Or, hey, can you clarify why you think this child needs the key card? And you know who I look to to help me add those sentences in is my OTs or my PTs even for like how we're going to mount it on the device. But you have your data, you've completed your trial, you write one humdinger report, and then I email it back to these companies. Behind the scenes, these companies reach out and obtain a prescription from the pediatrician for why, just a prescription for the device. Just like they write a prescription for speech therapy, they have to write a prescription for the device. And they obtain basically a progress note from the pediatrician as to why this is medically necessary. And in that progress note, it includes a list of the child's medical conditions, including what it is that you're treating. So I need to be specific here on your ICD-10 codes. Having an ICD-10 code for mixed expressive receptive language disorder may or may not by itself get approved. This is why it's critical that when we code, we are coding to the highest degree of specificity. So if I have a child that had neonatal abstinence syndrome, an IVH interventricular hemorrhage, if we had a CVA, cerebrovascular accident, if we have a proxy of speech, if we have a genetic condition, if we have all of the above, all of those would result in a cognitive communication deficit because it is a neurogenic-based communication disorder. So I code R41.841, which is cognitive communication deficit. Their deficit is not a delay. Their deficit is based off of a known neurogenic condition. And that has been a game changer in specificity for the caliber of reports that I write. So I would give that recommendation that you, if you don't know what caused the child's disorder or delay, because we don't always have access to the medical records, honey, you got to go back, 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 back and do a root cause analysis because insurance companies will want that before they shell out four to eight to $12,000 on a communication device. And then once you have your report, you have your prescription, you have your letter of medical necessity, the companies that Aaron and I collaborate with, they send it all off to the insurance companies and they keep us abreast of every single step in the process. And then knock on wood, my maiden name was Wood, your device is approved, ta-da. So specificity, yeah. And that's not, again, goodness gracious, that's not something that's taught in grad school is why we have to code for specificity. But it boils down to reimbursement, to getting these things advocated for the little ones. I went twangy there. I'm sorry. So, okay. It's late. I've been up since 4.30. 
What else aired? <laughs> got it. We got it. Crush it. What was the last? Did we get that one? Yes. Okay. Oh God. I love this. Brian, you're so very welcome. We absolutely love AAC. This is feeding AAC floor time, trauma-informed care. They all are intimately intertwined. So folks, please make sure that you log on to Speech Therapy PD and complete the quiz for the, oh, you're so very welcome. Please come by at Asha and say hi to Aaron and I. Check us out on our Instagram account, First Bite Podcast. We will be posting when we'll be volunteering at the booth. If you ever have a guest that you would love for us to interview, you know, we love to have your insight. I mean, I like to geek out with people. So there's that. And please be kind, pop on Apple Podcasts and hit us up with some five stars and a review. I hate saying that. (laughs) What else, love? Anything else, Erin? I don't think so. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Thank you for making this so dynamic. And please tell all of the AEC companies that we said hi. And thank you. (laughs) Bye, y'all. Good night, everybody. Bye. Feeding Matters guide system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.